Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Synthetic compounds are found in a whole load of items that we make these days, and for good reason. They can help us make um, newfound or uh, superior chemical composites that go into the everyday items that we sometimes take for granted, like non-stick pans and water-resistant materials and stuff. They make uh, new age materials. But these synthetic compounds are often now being detected in drinking water sources worldwide and in the environment generally, and are being dubbed forever chemicals. So what can we do about it? Well, Dr. Rory Brannigan is Assistant Professor in the School of Chemical Sciences at DCU, and he joins me now. So let's start off, Rory, with this definition of uh, of these for forever chemicals, also known as PFAS. What, what are they? Yes, so uh, these are um, uh, chemical compounds that are made up predominantly of carbon and fluorine. Uh, and have uh, groups on them that help them solubilize uh, into aqueous environments. And so carbon fluorine uh, bonds are extremely strong. And uh, because of this, uh, it stops the majority of these materials from breaking down uh, under environmental conditions. Uh, So that's why they have this, um, I suppose, forever property. Right. So they're resistant to heat and water and oil and and friction and all of these things that make them great for making things. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So um, this is the reason why they're so widely used. Uh, As you mentioned, they're very good for heat resistant oil and water resistance as well. So application of these are kind of widespread from everything from um, nonstick coating pans, as you mentioned, uh, all the way to the pharmaceutical industries and even uh, in protecting clothing and materials. So when did these PFAS come uh, about and how prolific are they exactly? Um, so they were actually discovered in the late 40s uh, by DuPont, uh, a chemical company, who were looking into coolants for refrigerators. Uh, and they're actually found by accident. Um, so a, a canister of tetrafluoroethylene uh, gas was left unattended for a while. Uh, as they were disposing of this, they found that the, um, the gas had actually polymerized and formed a, a waxy material that coated the inside of the canister. And uh, the, the properties that they found were that it was, as we mentioned before, this um, oil-resistant, water-resistant material. So from there on, they uh, licensed out to 3M, who were their biggest producers, and they created the uh, material we know as Teflon. Uh, right. So that is on nearly all nonstick pans around the world. I'm sure everyone has one in their kitchen. Uh, from there on, these uh, fluorinated compounds were explored more for other uh, applications. So they are in an awful lot of our products, um, from nonstick pans to uh, they were previously in firefighting foams to uh, plumber's tape, which is PTFE as well into things like Scotchgard and protecting coatings for uh, materials. A lot of those uh, applications you're talking about are, are long-term. Um, and so is, is that a problem? Because, I, I mean, I presume this material is not easily recycled if it's, if it's very resistant to all the things you talked about. Yeah, so actually the, the main issues with the uh, PFAS in general is that they slowly uh, can break apart. Uh, so in the terms of uh, Teflon, they can come away from your pan over time. Uh, these things get washed into the environment. 
and they exist as smaller molecules uh, that can't be easily taken back out of the environment. So, I mean, yes, Teflon itself can't really be recycled very easily, but the bigger problem is the, uh, I suppose, degradation products that come off these uh, long-term materials that we're using. And so um, what is the danger to humans, animals and the environment of these PFAS being um, uh, sort of introduced slowly through this degradation? Presumably um, there's a, a, a sort of a shelf life of these products and after that they will start to break down and uh, I would say leach, but sort of um, uh, spread out through the, through the environment. Is that is that a problem? Yeah, actually, I think the terminology that you used there was uh, perfect, that they leach out of these materials and into the environment. And once in the environment, uh, they're extremely persistent. So they don't degrade down naturally and they just continue cycling through the environment, mostly through waterways, but also through uh, airways as well. And when they get into humans, they cause a whole host of problems. Uh, They're associated with a lot of diseases, including uh, certain types of cancers. But the big one is that they disrupt the endocrine system, which is what really controls the hormones and your hormone levels in your body. Um, And that can have lots of issues when we're looking at things like thyroid um, function. Uh, So a lot of disease uh, attached to that. But also hormone production in um, unborn children as well, which can lead to fetal abnormalities, which is a huge problem, obviously, for uh, the next generation. Okay, so that's really serious. What are we talking about in terms of the the evidence for those um, things that you've talked about? I mean, is it really um, very well established that PFAS have an increase of risk of can- cancer and um, create hormonal disruption in, in animals? It's been a source of ongoing research. Initially, we thought that the longer uh, PFAS, so what are called C8 PFAS, so they have eight carbons in that carbon chain with the fluorines on it. Um, it was thought that they were particularly bad. Uh, so they were, have been phased out since, I suppose, the early 2000s, 2010. And short PFAS have been used kind of since then. But there's more and more studies coming out showing that they're equally as bad, if not uh, worse. And so there is a growing body of evidence out there to to suggest that these things are extremely dangerous. Now, um, Europe has obviously very stringent rules uh, compared to many other countries worldwide when it comes to the sale of um, products to do with health or products um, that uh, humans interact with. Why are these materials legal if they are so dangerous? It's an excellent question. So since they uh, were kind of created back in the 40s, it wasn't actually until the early 2000s when the first kind of legal case was brought against DuPont to kind of highlight the dangers of these materials. So from that point onwards, we have been slowly but surely trying to phase out some of these PFAS. I'd like to say that there's about four, four and a half thousand of these types of chemicals uh, used throughout the world. Uh, And currently we are only looking to ban uh, the eight most prolific. So they're used in a lot of different applications. They're really good at what they do. And if we were to just turn off uh, the use of PFAS in the morning, we would have a lot of industries fall apart, including the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. Why are they so toxic if they are so resistant to 
water, oil, heat, and so on. Why are they not more inert? So it is the kind of carbon-fluorine interactions with the biological systems that have the, I suppose, uh, negative effect. Right. Uh, Fluorine is, uh, you know, an extremely oxidizing element. So when it's in the body, it can do quite a little bit of damage to the biological systems. Right. Okay. And so... um, we're we're hoping that legislation will catch up with this, but we also are hugely dependent on them because of modern in industrial manufacturing methods. What can we do in terms of public information? And, and are there things that people listening to this program should be doing differently as a result of what we now know about PFAS? So it is something that we are concerned about trying to get this information out to the public. Obviously, the public should know about these things. But the issue surrounds, I suppose, our solutions. There's, there's very few solutions of efficiently removing these PFAS uh, from uh, our environment. So we have to, I suppose, take a careful uh, approach to how we inform the public. With regards to what people can do, I would say the best thing that people can do is lobby their local politicians to interact with bodies like the EPA uh, with Ishka Aaron to really try and push forward leg- legislation and also research into these technologies that can remove PFAS. Okay, so let's talk about those two things. Number one, the removal of um, PFAS. Is, is there anything that, I mean, it, it sounds like these products are both very prolific and that that degradation presumably results in microparticles in the same way as we, we talk about microplastics. Um if, if if they are everywhere in the environment, um, surely it's it's going to be impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, are there technologies technologies we can use to remove PFAS from from human environments? Yeah, there's some technologies out there at the moment, but they either suffer from, I suppose, not being very specific to removing PFAS, so they they collect other pollutants, uh, which isn't a bad thing. But if we're specifically looking at trying to capture PFAS the efficiency of those systems uh, probably aren't that great. The efficient systems, uh, unfortunately, what they suffer from is that actually operating them, so things like reverse osmosis, um, it is highly energy intensive, so it has a negative impact on the environment itself. And so it's really kind of a juggling act uh, at that point. Is it impossible to uh, completely put the genie back in the bottle, as you said? Potentially. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and get uh, as much of these things out of the environment as possible and as quick as possible, uh, especially for future generations. Yeah, I was just reading up on this in the, the CDC in America, um, the, the Center for Disease Control. Um, they were saying that um, these PFAS were found in uh, 97% of Americans. So that they do seem to be everywhere. Is it possible to identify whether or not a product you are using uh, has contained a a PFAS? And are there alternatives that we might use that that don't? As it stands, companies aren't actually uh, required to say whether they contain PFAS or not. Wow. Um, In Europe, there is a legislation going through uh, banning, as I mentioned, eight of 4,000 plus PFAS, which is a good first step. Um, Another good step would be for these companies to be required to say whether or not their um, products contain uh, PFAS. 
I think in Europe, we're a little bit behind the curve when it comes to, uh, I suppose, regulation and even uh, detection of these types of chemicals. They've been more prevalent in America for longer. Um, so they, they have a, a kind of, they're at least getting to grips with the, with the problem. Give me some good news here, Rory, because you're saying that these uh, chemicals are everywhere, that they are um, in, in concentrations very toxic, that they're very difficult to remove, and that we don't know what's in these um, the, in the products, so we can't be able to screen these PFAs out consciously. I mean, where is the where is the optimism of the story? Unfortunately, it is a fairly and you know pessimistic kind of view that I've, I've uh, put forward. It is a difficult challenge, but I suppose the optimistic side would be that we have a lot of good researchers working in this area. And it seems that the, you know, we have a, a common problem and we are putting on a united front. And so there's huge work being done all across Europe, including here in DCU, and lots of consortiums being established to you know, really tackle this problem um, and it's a problem without borders. And, it, you know, there's a lot of scientists coming together uh, from all different walks of life really trying to solve this. So um, the future is hopefully bright and we're, we're trying to do as best as we can. Um, but the, I suppose the, the current situation is it's not great. And what about alternatives to these materials? Are there any viable PFAS alternatives that do as good a job or nearly as good a job, but don't have that toxicity or do we just not have the research on those yet? Um, the research is definitely coming down the line. Um, there's a lot of groups working in that area as well, looking at alternatives to these or even uh, taking existing PFAS and trying to make them more degradable. So, yeah, you know, that research is coming down the line, which is which is great to see. But a lot of this stuff takes a long time to get into the, I suppose, the production lines and for these big companies to try and uh, switch to these alternatives. Right. Well, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. You can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. You can text 53106. Um, had you heard of PFAS? Um, and uh, what do you make of what uh, Dr. Rory Brannigan has been saying? He is assistant professor in the School of Chemical Sciences at DCU. Rory, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.